0: Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org.
1: Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why, philosophical discussions about everyday life. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Susan Palmer, asking what the difference is between a religion and a cult. Religions are weird and complex things. They are mixtures of our deepest desires, our most unspoken fears, and the artistic attempt to reconstruct the beautiful. The rituals that make intuitive sense to us are baffling to others, what to wear and eat, who to love and challenge, where to look and why to choose one thing over another. How do we explain these things to folks who just don't get it? This is why unfamiliar religions seem so strange to us and why this foreignness is exploited by theological competitors. In one of my all-time favorite books, Lies My Teacher Told Me by James Lowen, a former guest on the show, by the way, He quotes a high school social studies textbook description of Native American religions to make this very point. These Native Americans, the book claims, believed that nature was filled with spirits. Each form of life, such as plants and animals, had a spirit. Earth and air had spirits too. People were never alone. They shared their lives with the spirits of nature. This is a romantic description, but also kind of childish and unsophisticated. It feels so primitive. But then lowen asks us to consider what it would sound like if we described Christianity in the same way. He offers the following. These Americans believed that one great male God ruled the world. Sometimes they divided him into three parts, which they called the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. They ate crackers and wine or grape juice, believing that they were eating the Son's body and drinking his blood. If they believed strongly enough, they would live on forever after they died. All of a sudden, Christianity sounds pretty primitive, too. Religion is an insider's game. The debates and controversies are for adherents and specialists, and only those versed in the nuances can hope to approach descriptive accuracy. But this leads to a further problem. The acolyte is rarely objective. Once you're in, you live and die with your own religion. You give it the benefit of the doubt. You prioritize its agenda. You defend it from outsiders' critiques. Just like no one really knows anything about anyone else's marriage, no one really understands other people's faith. The only way to truly get it is to be a part of it. Now, don't feel too bad for big religions. They can hold their own. Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, even the ever-threatened Judaism can withstand the attack from the non-believer. They've got some books that are thousands of years old and others written to defend the first ones. They've hired clergy and built places of worship and celebrate people whose sole job is to protect them from critique. They have histories, myths, and money, paintings and statues, symphonies, poems. Some even have armies. In short, they have their partisans, and some of them, at their best moments, might even have access to some small pieces of truth. Stranger things have happened. So the big religions are doing fine, but what about the small ones? the ones just starting to form, who survive on the scraps the other have left behind. What about a sect that was made up of 12 people whose book was written last year, whose partisans seem too out there to garner our respect? Is it fair to suggest, prima facie, that they have no access to any truths? Is it okay to reject in principle their wisdom and ways of life? After all, the newest medicine is the most effective and the most recent moral lessons are also the most inclusive. How is it that religious belief is the only place we reject progress? We have a term for these new religions. We call them cults, and we do so simply to wave them away. We take the most extreme, the Branch Davidians, the Moonies, the Manson family, and we use them as stand ins for the others. We accuse them of obscene violence, as if the big religions do not have a history of unjust massacres. We charge them with superstition, as if their long-standing brethren aren't themselves pretty bizarre. We even charge them with simply looking ridiculous. But that's just not fair. Speaking for my own team, Judaism inspires some really awful haircuts. The world cult categorizes new religions as cartoon characters and none of us would be surprised if somewhere there were a bunch of fanatics living in a pineapple under the sea on this episode we're going to ask about the difference between religion and cults and question whether this distinction makes sense we're going to look at what it means to study as an outsider and the ethical dilemmas that come from taking them seriously we're going to question whether there can be objectivity in the study of religion and appreciate the aesthetic beauty of the new but mostly What we'll do is offer other religions the generosity and empathy we usually reserve for our own. When James Lowen offered up these caricaturish descriptions of Native American religions and Christianity, he didn't do so to challenge their legitimacy. He did it to condemn the writers who described them so lazily. Religions lie at the core of the human experience. If we're going to bother to talk about them, we should probably do so with a little respect. And now our guest. Susan J. Palmer is a researcher, sociologist, and writer in the area of new religious movements. She's a member of the Religious Studies faculty at McGill University and affiliate professor and part-time instructor at Concordia University. She's the author of numerous books, most recently Storming Zion, Government Raids on Religions, with co-author Stuart Wright. Susan, welcome to Why.
2: Thank you, Jack. It's great to be here.
1: If you'd like to participate... Share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at y Radio Show. You can always email us at asky at and listen to our previous episodes for free at YRadioShow.org. So, Susan, I'm just going to not waste any time and take the bull by the horns and ask you straight out, is the word cult a derogatory term?
2: Well, the, the short answer is yes. It's more than just uh, a way to wave a group away, as you said. It's also an excuse to to persecute, to in, in, you know, to insult in the media, to to launch um, well, sometimes uh, military raids. If you look at you know the whole world, and um, so it's it's quite a serious four-letter word to use against a group of people. The word, of course, comes from the Latin cultus, which simply was sort of an agricultural term. It means to cultivate, you know, to um, the word culture is related to that word. And it was a pretty neutral word used by historians. Um, You talk about the cult of the Virgin Mary or um, cargo cults in Melanesia. But then in the 1970s, -1970s, mid-1970s, the media started using it as uh, meaning a fake religion, whose leader is Either crazy or a psychopath.
1: Was something uh, happening that inspired that shift? Did it? Did, was it organic, or, or was there some sort of persecution or some poli- obvious political intent that inspired them to do this?
2: Well, first there was um, an amazing proliferation of you know Asian religions that, that sprung up in America, like the Hari Krishna and. Um, the Sufis and the um, uh, Maharishi, you know, Maharishi Mahesh Yoga, um, and upper, middle upper well upper class parents were worried because their young kids were joining instead of going into, you know, the professions and university, and they had a lot of uh, access to the media, so these. Um, negative article, articles started coming out simply because I think parents were concerned about their children. They saw this as a way to throw away your life. But then in 1978 we had the tragedy of, of Jonestown in Guyana, and after that the word cult became, you know, a very sinister word. You know, it, it um, the the
1: the Jonestown massacre brings up the phrase "drinking the Kool-Aid," which now is used all of the time, at least in America, and most people don't know its origin. <laughs> when, when you when you hear that, do, do you does it make you bristle, or are you just so used to that sort of thing that it's it's just another notch?
2: No, no, I don't bristle. It's just it's just become kind of a cliche, you know. Um, I find that people use the word. Cult—it's kind of like, uh, you know, when people bring up the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust, in a kind of offhand way in a conversation in order to win an argument, it sort of freezes the dialogue and and nobody can say anything. I had a mother who, who called me and she was worried about her daughter in my class who, who decided she wanted to go off and interview a Scientologist, and she said, "Oh dear." is Scientology a cult? And all she wanted me to say was yes or no. And of course, it's more complicated. Um, so in the end, I just said, look, your daughter is not a budding Scientologist. She's a budding journalist. <laughs> uh,
1: there are some people who think that's worse, but I don't know that we have to get in the conversation. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out which, which thread to pull first. So, so I guess let me let, let me ask a a more well, no. You are a sociologist by trade, and 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 I guess the first question I want to ask is: Is looking at these sorts of things different as a sociologist? Actually, you know what? I've changed my mind. What I'm going to ask you, and I'll tell you in advance, so you can think about it, is looking is looking at um, this sort of thing as a sociologist, different than looking as a philosopher or a theologian. But actually, before then, I realize, I want to ask, we shift from the term cult to new religious movements. That's the term I understand you prefer. What does that term give us that cult doesn't give us? Why new religious movements?
2: Well, scholars in the field like to call them new religious movements, or NRMs for short, um, because they're new. They're young religions whose leader has died recently or is still living, whose founder, you know, charismatic prophet, is still around. Or, um, And their movements, they move. And in other words, they change rapidly because they're because they're very young, like a baby. You know, they they transform quickly. You know, they expand, they change rituals, they experiment. Um, the leader is still making up the belief system because he He's hearing revelations, he or she. So, um, you know, they move, and then they're they're religions. So we take them seriously as religions. We think they're just as, quote, religious as the Catholic Church or or any other established religion, because people are seeking those kind of answers, uh, you know, to religious questions, which are, what is the nature of reality? What are we here? Is there a divine power looking, you know overlooking us and what happens when we die, those kind of questions of the group, you know, new religions are, quote, cults. They have answers to those questions, or at least they think they do.
1: <clears throat> so this then leads to the question I was thinking of, because as a philosopher, my first instinct is to evaluate this by the truth of the religion and to say insofar as we do or don't have access to it. No, your ethical system is wrong or your conception of what happens after life doesn't make any sense. As a sociologist, can you bracket the truth claims and just look at the sociological aspects? When you study these new religions... Yes, we use the word
2: bracketing. We, We bracket. In other words, we don't say oh, you're right, the extraterrestrials did come to Earth you know, and found um, civilization. You know, I was studying the Raelian movement for 15 years, you know, the biggest UFO religion in the world. So I would do quite a lot of bracketing, which means you don't sneer at them and you don't say, oh, they're wrong, but you don't say, oh, maybe that's true, how wonderful. Um, of course, there are always moments when I think, hmm, what if this were true? <laughs> I mean, I do like to think that I'm you know, still open enough to the possibility of conversion is still there. I'm not too old and, and you know, hardened by all my research. So, you know, there are always moments when I think, hmm, I wonder. But, as, you know, as a sociologist, you're not there to, to assess their, their truth claims, and you're not there to, you know, agree or disagree but when I write articles about them, I don't like to make it too distant. I don't like to say they claim that their leader was, you know, given a ride on a, on a spaceship. I'll just say, um, Rael, uh, you know, I'll say it as if I believe it for a minute, but then I'll sort of make it clear that this is what they told me. Because I don't want to appear too... Um, I don't know, overly scientific, you know what I mean? Overly objective. I mean, they're not specimens, they're not worms.
1: What, you, you have a marvelous piece that uh, has been reproduced on long form, uh, which I'll link to on the website. And in it, you introduce the, the the study of this and talk about some of your research assumptions. And then you tell some stories and you tell the stories with such good humor and affection but that's not what we think about when we think about religions. We think about overly seriousness, clinical or threatening or passion. Can you take this seriously and still laugh? I mean, I understand there's a difference between laughing at and laughing with, but philosophers are not a, a good-humored bunch. <laughs> we are we are overly concerned with our own seriousness yet you bring a kind of levity to it. Is that a part of the humanization of it, or is that your personality, and do some people object to that?
2: Well, it's probably just a personal weakness. Like, I tend to want to burst out laughing sometimes when I'm watching some weird ritual, or I joke around with my colleagues about a group who just visited, you know. But on the other hand, I I do respect them. Um, I think I have a, a respect for this, this yearning um, to know you know the secrets of the universe or this attempt to build a utopian society I mean you know they have very very high ideals, and I really admire people who who put their life on the line and really try to figure out you know the meaning of life the secret of the universe and create the perfect society I, I find that just in itself very impressive.
1: How do they react when you approach them? Are they happy about being studied? Are they resentful? Do they use it? What happens when when you express an interest in them?
2: Every group is different. Um, I've learned from experience to avoid certain pitfalls. Like I don't use the word religion, which some of them don't like at all. And um, often they assume I'm a journalist and then I have to explain I'm a sociologist but they think that's just a superior kind of journalist often. Um, and it depends. Some groups just tell me to buzz off, you know, get lost. And some groups say, oh, she doesn't realize it, but she's a, she really needs our love and she's a lost soul, you know, groping for the light and we can help her. And she'll soon get over this, this ridiculous idea that she's a researcher and a social scientist. So that's actually very often the kind of terms on which I get
1: Access and if you exploit this, and this is a thread I'll pull later on in the show. But if you exploit this, is that a violation of your research ethics? If you say, "Oh yes, I'm 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 in the dark, and I'd love to learn more about it as a way to get in," is that?
2: Uh, and none of the groups I'm I'm studying are listening to this uh, radio <laughs> program, but <laughs> um, yes, I tend to. Uh, basically, I'm so. Desperate to get the data, that I'll almost do anything, you know. But of course, you know, research boards today are very strict. But I mean, part of me is, you know, part of me is seeking the truth to, you know, the truth to reality and existence, and kind of hoping somebody can convert me so I'll be, you know, a better person. I mean, still, you know. Um, So I'm, I'm sort of open. I'm open to what they want to tell me and to, you know, to think about it and see if it applies to my life. But but mostly I'm thinking, hey, this look this will be great in my article, or I must use it for my book.
1: <laughs> right, because you are an academic first and foremost, right? So it's about the publication. I, I'm curious, something you said in passing that some of the groups don't like the term religion. Why not?
2: Well, they think of it as you know the sort of hidebound, dead religions today that uh, you know have a rigid priesthood and. And you know, will be there at the hanging to give the prisoner, you know, absolution or something. So they 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 rejected Orthodox religion. Many of them. They just they dislike it. So they don't want to be told that they if they're going to end up like the other groups. Um, you know, it's funny. Once I was I was studying this group, um, which is a communal group who believes in the the end of the world is imminent. And they suddenly decided they were going to go burn all their leaders, um, you know, letters, and they're going to go dig them up and, and burn them. And I got very upset, and I said, "You can't do that. These are important historical records." And you see, I, I come from a fifth, five generations of Mormons, and you know, they they keep all their documents, and they have you know so many historical. So I said, you know, someday you know, these will be very valuable, and, and your great-great-great-grandchildren may want you know. And they looked at me and said, well, we don't want to be like the Mormon church. <laughs> he said, you know, we believe that God is coming very soon, and there won't be, you know, a church. And so it was really interesting, because I was very upset about them doing this. And basically they were saying, we don't care about the future, we don't care about history We don't want to be a respectable church someday, you
1: know? There's another word there, this respectable. I mean, obviously—so what did this group think the term respectable means? I mean, obviously the term is yours. But but when these groups reject this orthodox, dodgy, established religion, is it analogous to— a teenager sort of rejecting the way of life of their parents, it doesn't matter what that way life is. there's going to be rebellion, or is there some sort of thread of respectability of institutionalization of of uh i don't know establishment that runs through this group in particular but but groups in general?
2: I think the analogy of rebellion against the parent is is a good one because I see these groups as baby religions, basically. Some of them get, then they get to be teenage religions, and they get kind of obnoxious and rebellious and tempestuous, and eventually, they they either are stomped out, or they split up, or they they turn into a sort of minority uh, religion, or you know, church or sect. But they can't this charismatic phase where they're hearing the leader is hearing directly from God or the extraterrestrials, and the group is is very very emotional and passionate and changing rapidly. This can't last. This is sort of like daffodils in the spring. So, um, yeah, I think think there is this rebellious thing and the need to, it's it's partly the need to create their own identity, their own group identity. So they have to reject the identity, you know, that they had before or the, you know, mainstream culture in order to, to create this new budding culture.
1: When we come back from the break, I want to ask you what religion is and if the term differs radically in the larger, uh, more well-known religion in these small groups. I also want to follow up on something that you just said, which is that this charismatic stage can't last, and I want to talk a little bit about whether or not there are identifiable phases that you see in in each of these new religious movements. But for the moment, you're listening to Susan Palmer and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back right after this.
0: Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower.
1: We're back with five philosophical discussions with everyday life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking with Susan Palmer about the difference between religions and cults, and shifting to using the term "new religious movements" instead of cults. You know, I grew up in New York City. I was born in 1969, so I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. And uh, the Hare Krishna movement, which she mentioned earlier, was very familiar to me. It was it, ever present. It was present in the park. It was present in the in the subway. Um, Hearing their tambourines and their chants and seeing them in their um pastel colored robes this was it was normal, and I never ever thought of the them as anything other than this religion that was always there and I always tell a story that I am the only person in the world who's ever been hit by Hare Krishna. And it. Um, I was walking through Harvard Square, and there was a Krishna a representative, young guy, who would always sort of try to get my attention, and I would ignore him. And, and, uh, and so finally, he cornered me, and he talked to me for a minute, and he said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a philosophy grad student. And he said, and then he Bashed me on both on my chest with both hands and knocked me over and said, So you should be completely interested in this. And um that's the whole story. It's not that long of a story. But that idea of the passion overriding the pacifism of Hare Krishna's has always stuck with me. So I guess, Susan, the question I, I want to ask you about this is does is one of the keys to accepting these religions just taking them for granted. And what I mean by that is, for me, the Hare Krishnas were just ever-present. They were always there. There was nothing odd or abnormal about them. And so I just treated them the way that, you know, they were a religion, a small religion that I had no interest in. Is is one of the central themes uh, in dealing with new religious movements that they're isolated and they're unfamiliar and they're strange? Is, Is there... Is their segregated way of life self-detrimental? Does it does it interfere with their goals?
2: Well, that's those are several questions there. I think first of all, um, what's important is to get information to understand the group, and there are several important um, institutes that that offer information on unconventional religions and new religions to the public, like. Inform in London and the UK, um, so people can phone up or go on their website, like any worried parent whose child has just joined some strange group can find out um, accurate and reliable information. So they don't depend on, you know, sort of tabloid articles that say, hey, this is another Jonestown, you know. So I think that's really important for people who want to know about the latest cult cult that, you know, came to town to find out if it's... Some of these groups actually have never been studied. They're too new nobody's... There's so many. In fact, we can't study all of them. But many of them, there, there's a couple, at least a couple of articles by a, a grad student or somebody. And so they can find out. They could um, go and get the group's literature and look at what they believe. And, of course, the groups are all very, very different. Like, some of them are, in fact, uh, dangerous or, you know, fraudulent. Or, you know, they... They practice fraud, or there has been a history of abuse, or you know, crime in the group. I and mean, it's pretty rare. I mean, most of them, in my experience, are quite harmless. But you know, it's like when you're, you know, when you're swimming, you want to avoid a moray eel, but you can hang out with the other fish, you know. So they're all quite different. I think that's important to, to uh, for people to understand because journalists tend to think that once you put the word cult. Then you think of Jonestown or Omshinmikyo or Waco or the groups which have had violent episodes. So the idea is this group is going to blow up and people are going to get killed. But in fact, this is ridiculous. Um, It's actually very rare if you you look at the sheer number of them.
1: Is there an estimate as to how many of these groups there are? And and, and is there a sense how big do they tend to be once they start getting noticed?
2: Well, there have been different estimates. Now, the problem is, where do you draw the line between a, quote, cult sect and a church? Because some of them might have a a reverend or a priest who broke away and started a new little congregation. So we're not quite sure yet if he's still part of the Catholic Church because he hasn't been excommunicated yet, you know. So there are these borderline groups. And um, then there are groups that you know, come from India or another country, and then the uh, Swami decides to set up shop for the local hippies, and then the group goes through these amazing transformations and actually turns into quite an original new religion. But other people's, you know, so the question is, are they a a Hindu missionary movement in the West, or are they a, quote, cult? So it's kind of often hard to separate as as a category, and in order to count them. So I'm saying that. And then, of course, there are always little groups that are always sprouting up that nobody's noticed yet. And also some of them just die a natural death or, or, or move. So it's actually quite difficult counting them. In Quebec, there used to be a center of information on new religions, and they estimated there are 800 in Quebec, which is where I live. I just wrote a book, by the way. I just came out with a volume co-edited with my, with Garo and Martin, on uh, which is called the mystical geography of Quebec, and it's about new religious movements in Quebec. In the states, we've had a lot of different estimates, maybe 2,000 or, or less. Um, so it's hard to it's hard to say, really.
1: Are some cultures more accepting or fertile, I should say, for Uh, new religious movements, are you more likely to find them in Quebec and America than, say, Italy or a place like that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. This American sociologist, uh, Rodney Stark, uh, has this term, um, uh, if a country has a, quote, favorable ecology. So, for example, a prophet who's just had a vision can come to Montreal and set up shop, no problem, but if he goes to Iran or China, forget it, you know, you will end up in jail. So certainly some cultures are much more open and, uh, you know, hospitable. Oh, the other thing I want to say, though, is not all new religions are um, sectarian and, you know, communal. Um, I think the most interesting ones, the ones that fascinate me, are the ones that have the most unique cultures and they have different you know family patterns like unusual authority patterns and so on and they they often have funny costumes and these are groups that are waiting for the end of the world that believe everyone should share everything in common the leader is seen as divine and these groups are fascinating to study because they're so different but there are many um, new religions that really aren't that different than you know just going to an office party or something in other words they they have a different philosophy, but people are not that involved. They might show up for an hour a week or, you know, just subscribe to the newsletter or something but and use the you know, use the techniques to improve their career or something. There are very different types of new religions and some of them don't demand much commitment.
1: If we narrow it down to the picture that lots of people have of these, the kind you were just describing, that have their own unique culture, that are often communal, that are really intense uh, response to divine, charismatic leaders, what does that do to the numbers? Uh, d- does it cut the numbers down to 500 in the United States and 100? I mean, I understand these are estimates, but I guess part of what we're trying to get at is we have such a dominant sense of this as being the picture of of a cult. I'm curious how representative it actually is of the new religious movements.
2: Um, You mean number of adherents or or number of groups like that?
1: Uh, Say group likes that first.
2: Oh. Well, um, again, again, it's kind of hard to say. And another another variable is some groups start off just as a yoga class, and the leader is, you know, (laughs) and acharya or something. He's you know, he's a good yoga teacher. And then he suddenly has a vision and says, Oh, by the way, I'm a reincarnation of of Krishna or something, or Swami or something, or some great Indian sage, you know. And then he says, Oh, and by the way I had a revelation the end of the world is coming, everybody has to wear white and give up me all their money and move into a commune or something. So you have and then he might even it might suddenly change when he dies. They might all go back to just being a yoga camp, you know. So you do find groups that go through phases and they actually transform in their... This is why it's great being a sociologist. They, they actually transform in their social structure. So from being, say, communal to, you know, just ordinary life. Um, so, you know, in that way, that makes it also hard to, to separate them
1: you talked about the violent aspect and and how people are concerned about that. But in passing, you've also mentioned this idea of giving all your money and, and, and subsuming your identity. And I'm curious about how legitimate those fears are and how often that is, because in the back of my head, I had a conversation with someone who's a moderately observant uh, conservative Jew, but who's a recovered drug addict. And once he said to me, he was paying his annual dues, and once he said to me, he said, being a Jew is a lot more expensive than being a drug addict, right? So, I mean, in the sense (laughs) that religions are expensive, that's not unique to new religions. But at the same time, there is this fear, of people being completely subsumed and giving up all of their worldly possessions, and that's the that's the cultural myth that we tell. Is that common? Is that something that people ought to be afraid of, or is that like being struck by lightning, or or being you know eaten by an alligator or something? It it really doesn't happen very often.
2: Well, you know, if you you find ex-members, people who've been in a group for ten, twenty years, they come out. And they're very bitter that they sold the family home and gave all the money to the group um, that they haven't had any kind of work experience you know they're not going to get any kind of pension so then they get angry about it but then on the other hand, if you look at the successful religions like Christianity or the Mormon Church and these the the early disciples basically gave away everything and worked full time for free and you know it, it succeeded i mean they they built a new civilization. So if if you have a, a, a spiritual vision and dream and uh, idea of the future and you're a charismatic leader, well of course you expect people to give everything, all their money and all their time and energy to your project, and their expectations are so uh, wonderful that they uh, you know they feel this is certainly worth doing, um, and for many of them it it, it works out and that you know the group becomes successful. It's, it becomes international. They, they're promoted. They become local leaders. It becomes part of their way of life, their culture. Um, and for others, you know, the ex-members, you know, it's it's a disaster. They, they, they feel they've ruined their life.
1: I guess that's not so different than the garage rock and roll band that wants to make it big, right? That if they use all their money to buy guitars and amps and drums, and then they spend a year or two years in a van, uh, some summing their entire life to touring, and then they can't get a, a record deal or or their first record flops, and then they have to go. A friend of mine who was in a very aspiring band um, that had a couple records ended up becoming a dentist, right? And so I guess it's not that different, right? It's just it's just the commitment. So So – what is a religion? I mean, we're talking about the initial distinction between cult and religion, and, and we now have this idea that, well, okay, new religious movements are baby religions. They're just starting out. Some will be successful. Some won't. What is a religion? Is it something that we can define?
0: Well, as,
2: as a sociologist, um, you know, I, I would say a religion is a, a group of people. It has to be collective— and um, they have to have some kind of experience. Actually, uh, Ninian Smart has a good... I used this in a court case, actually, when I was an expert witness supporting a Rastafarian who was trying to... UPS was trying to fire him because he refused to shave off his dreadlocks in order to get a promotion. Um, And so they were saying it's not a real religion, and I said, well, it is a religion because it has these six characteristics that Ninian Smart, you know, lists, and one is that, you know, you have an organization, a group of people who meet. One is you have experience, an experience. So people have what they consider a spiritual experience. And for the Rastafarians, they, they get it by smoking ganja. And, um, and they have um, a myth, you know, an idea of how, creation myth, how the world was, you know, began and so on. What happens after you die. They have um, doctrines. They have, you know, values and how you should live moral values. I think there's another one I've forgotten about. Anyway, <laughs> you know, you can use this as, as a criteria to decide if a group is a, a religion or not. And there's a difference between the the way the different disciplines would look at, the, you know, new religions. For example, um, sociologists tend to be very tolerant to new religions because they see them as fascinating little mini cultures and societies that are fun to study. And that, you know, that Peter Berger, the great sociologist, said, you know, reality is socially constructed, so we don't, we don't say this is a real or unreal culture when we look at them. Or it's, it's just as real as our idea of what's real, you know, for middle class North Americans. Um, but psychologists tend to see them as, they tend to look at the leader as being a psychopath or a schizophrenic or a narcissist. There have been a lot of articles written, say, on Rajneesh as a narcissist. Um, and they tend to think, they, talk, they believe in the brainwashing theory, which is people only join because they're, you know, they're kind of duped and pressured and hypnotized and, and they put through these techniques of mind control and so on. Whereas sociologists would tend to say that conversion is voluntary, And um, theologians uh, tend to dislike new religions simply because they don't share the same belief system, so they have kind of a faith-based approach to studying religion.
1: That really touches on a lot of this, which is this question of free will and of choice. We all know the language of programming and deprogramming when it comes to uh, cults. But at the same time, right now we're in a period in the United States where there are adherents of of Donald Trump, say, where no matter what he says, no matter how obviously false it is, they accept it as true. So are the (laughs) – I'm going to ask you a question which is unfair because you're a sociologist, but are the sociologists taking this from the right perspective in the sense that – The psychologists are wrong to treat this force, this programming, this brainwashing as any different than what's happening in politics, than what happens in sports. Are the psychologists right that there's something unique going on there psychologically with new religions or are the sociologists right in that – you know this is just another form of a subcommunity with its own rules and people are f- as free as not free as their individual personalities allow
2: hmm. well of course i would tend to side with this sociologist
1: right well that's why i said it was an unfair question right <laughs> but 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 you can i mean you can imagine right and i mean you're an academic you can imagine the other side so so wh- where where are the where are the fault lines there where where do you think that sociologists uh, have the weaker claim and where do you think they have the stronger claim?
2: Uh, sociologists look at, you know, psychological theories and and study some of the DSP textbook. And certainly there's, there's been some interesting studies of charisma. Max Weber came up with the term charisma in his three types of domination. And that very much applies to new religious movements. And there have been some interesting studies of, of charismatic leaders that show that, you know, they're kind of some of them are kind of get used to living in a bubble and they have all these people around who suck up to them and are very sycophantic. And so they don't get criticism. They don't receive the kind of criticism most of us receive when we do things that hurt other people or, or you know, if we're too out of touch with reality or we're too greedy. And so some of them kind of go overboard just because they live in this environment which they're not getting you know, feedback and that can lead to you know, violence or abuse or danger or them getting arrested and, um, or rebellion. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, there, there is this kind of danger, I think, in a charismatic group where the leader is in this very special position and um, in a sense he's very, he or she is very alone and uh, they're 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 usually very brilliant people who are very sensitive and creative. I see them kind of like creative artists, and they can get you know misled or go too far, um, and then it can ruin all their work. You know, because I mean you have to have an enormous amount of talent to start a new religion. You know, the, the media has this sense that you just have to be a con artist and and start a religion and. But you don't you have to have personal charisma, you have to have enormous energy. you have to know how to handle people, impress people. you always have unforeseen obstacles coming at you. So I really kind of admire some of these uh, leader, quote, cult leaders and what they've accomplished and how far they get, you. Know? But some of them you know crash because you know there's certain pitfalls I think that come with charisma that they, they're not aware of and they can't handle
1: are these charismatic leaders, are they basically just religious entrepreneurs? Are they people who have an idea or have an experience that they're trying to articulate to others and the difficulties of starting a new sect or culture or or group or what have you are really just some sort of analog to starting a new business?
2: Well, um, I guess, well, first of all, they're all different, you know, so I can't, right. you know, you can't really generalize, but the, you know, the ones I've studied, which have had been successful, you know, in starting big international groups that, that last, um, they seem to have, I see it as having a very special talent, I mean, to, to, you know, people are either religious, there's this term religiously musical, which means you respond to religion, and in an aesthetic way, or you love it, or you enjoy it, or it touches a chord, you know? And I'm one of those people, like, I just love religion. I love being around religious people, even if they're total fanatics, you know, even if they have a gun collection, I still, you know, I still find them wonderful, you know?
1: I do have to interrupt for just a second, because you are talking to a very significant American audience. And oh. there's nothing fanatical about a gun collection, right? In, in, in America, so so, and and which is a, a little embarrassing, but that's in a whole other conversation. Um, and so, I think that underscores this first part, which is a lot of the things that seem foreign to one person seem perfectly commonplace to the other. But you actually, in in your writing, you talk about the aesthetics of religion a lot, and you talk about. Uh, this sort of experiencing it as beautiful and, and, and this thing that you're talking about now, um, that, religious, the, that religious musicality, is that, does that make people more susceptible to religion or does that just make people more appreciative of what they see before them independent of their belief or commitment or uh, attachment to the, to, to the discussion? Or to the to the religion itself
2: well, I think people see um, if people see a community where everybody appears to really love each other and care about each other and be working for each other, I think you know and i I've interviewed a lot of people who've talked about you know what they were like before they met this group, for example, I met a woman who was had very very serious anorexia, anorexia as a teen and she probably would have died she hadn't met this group, and, um, you know, people who've had very abusive families or something. So the group offers often a vision of, you know, this very beautiful community. And of course, you know, they're warts, and I mean, every community has its problems, and once you get to know them, you might think, ugh, i got to get out of here, which some of them do. But um, I think these groups there is something very special. I mean, they're trying, you know, they have very high ideals and people are making sacrifices to try to realize these ideals together. And there's something kind of inspiring about that. And, of course, the rituals, some of the rituals like the meditations or the chanting put people in an altered state of consciousness and then they interpret, they, then they, it makes them feel that, the, you know, the truth that the group is revealing is really true because they're feeling it of course, they might be feeling it if they were just off in a yoga class doing the same ritual with a bunch of, you know, businessmen. But, um, yeah, I think that there is an emotional and, and uh, aesthetic appeal that, that makes people join.
1: The vision that you just described of of the woman who used it to find a kind of happiness and, and, and counter her anorexia, and of course we all know people who were substance abusers who used religion uh, to be sober, um, and you also mentioned leaving abusive families – when we find members of new religions who were sick and then healed, so to speak, or became more healthy uh, by be a part of this loving community, we react fairly negatively. We react uh, in the sense that 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 somehow the religion has done something insidious, even though if we saw that in a different context, we would be incredibly celebratory. Is this just bigotry? Is this just a a cultural gut reaction to anything good that happens in a new religion to an outsider has to be bad? Or is something else going on there?
2: Well, I think you described that very well. I've certainly seen that pattern. Um, I think the reacting against, you know, a new religion is... That there's this idea that the, the person who joined is rejecting um, our culture. They're rejecting their parents, their parents' you know idea of reality. They're rejecting you know our economic uh, patterns. They're rejecting um, you know what we think is important, our values, like going to university, getting a great job. And so it's threatening. You know when you when you see people. Completely rejecting what you think is important and true, it is threatening, and so it's very tempting then to say, "Oh well, the person didn't choose this; they were brainwashed."
1: What What do you say to somebody in in, in the back of my head? Uh, there's one particular voice, but uh, but I won't I won't name the person because I don't want to embarrass them. Whose response to all of this is going to be? A pox on all of their houses there's nothing happening in new religions that uh, isn't happening in the big established religions, and that's because they're all evil and they're all insidious and they're all taking advantage and they're all anti-science and they're all X, y, and Z, and we would all be better off if there was no religion at all. does the existence well, I just of went new— to China to oh.
2: Beijing and I, I was invited to give some workshops you know to the police. On new religions, and the the term for new religions there is shijiao, and this is exactly their their idea. But on the other hand, mainstream religions are also seen as you know irrational and on the wrong track. So yeah, there is this idea that once everybody wakes up and becomes enlightened, and uh, we will all embrace science and reason and, and sweep religion under the carpet. And of course, many Americans have that idea too, or, or many Westerners the secularization and all that, but the whole idea of... This this is a very strong idea, actually, in the, I don't know, the early 1900s, but it it hasn't come true. I mean, religions are still thriving and proliferating, and um, you know, Christianity is booming.
1: What, What does the existence of the new religious movements provide to that argument that the more established religions may not give. What, you know, the argument for religion, the ex- argument for, not necessarily that everyone has to become religious, but but the, the argument for the value of religion in human culture and human life. Is there something that the, the newer religions, the baby religions, contribute to that arg- argument, contribute to that defense that maybe the instit- that the larger institutions don't?
2: Yes, I think so. I mean, well, religion... You know, is supposed to give us um, that kind of support that society doesn't give us. You know, like people get certain emotional supports, community support on on going to church on Sunday, but but you know, mainstream religions are often hidebound. They're unaware of the subtle changes in society. For example, for example, gender. You know, the way gender has changed, the way the family structure has changed the way the economy has changed and they're not really responding in a sensitive way to people's needs whereas often these little upstart religions um, have you know they have answers that, that may sound really weird but they seem to work with people and, and they are kind of aware of, of um, you know problems that people have and, and, and give them solutions um, that can't be found yet. In mainstream religions, because often it takes a while. For example, the Unitarian Church now is very hospitable, hospitable towards gay couples, and yet 50 years ago, you know, every every Christian church was was hostile basically to homosexuality. And you find, you know, pagan groups where they've even gone way beyond. And there's there's a very elaborate kind of gay culture in 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 you know neo-paganism. Um, and I was just reading about this group in uh, Brazil. I think it's called the Valley of the Dawn or something, where they they offer healing and um, help to people, and they're they're responding to poverty in in a really new way, and and with healing rituals uh, available to people who've, who've tried different you know medical treatments that didn't work. So I think you know new religions are kind of filling the gap. I mean, they're they're sprouting up between the cracks, if you like, where mainstream religion is, you know, leaving gaps.
1: So, so it's more than just the new religious movements provide a sort of boutique religion, a sort of a religion that pays more attention to this particular individual because the institutions aren't so big. It's also that the larger religions... Are missing pieces that are that are relevant to a new world, and the new religions maybe are more responsive to that. Is that is that?
2: For example, in the sixties, you know, say in California, um, there was this big uh, counterculture where youth were trying psychedelic drugs, and then most of them from there went on to become interested in Asian religions and in ideas of reincarnation and you know learning how to. Induce altered states of consciousness through meditation techniques, rather than just you know dropping acid or smoking weed or whatever. So, I mean, the, certainly the mainstream churches were not sensitive to this this social trend, but you know you find a lot of new religions who were very sensitive, like the Hare Krishna. In fact, when they moved into San Francisco, had this big poster on their temple saying, stay, halt, "Stay high all the time on Krishna, no bring down." <laughs> transcendental ecstasy, blah, 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 you know. So um, these, these, quote, cult leaders were talking about these real things, and and it was also the sexual re- revolution, which was like, you know, the mainstream churches would look askance at people who didn't get married first. But, you know, many of these, for example, the children, children of God um, had their, what they, what they call, happy hookers for Jesus, you know, female missionaries. And... Um, You know, they had very liberal attitudes to sexuality, which they somehow uh, absorbed into their whole religious culture. So, you know, it became part of the sacred, you know, way they lived. And um, so, you know, in many ways I've I've seen new religions as forms of experimentation that are experimenting with things that are going on in society that... um, that you know, the big religions haven't really noticed yet or
1: learned how to cope with. I really like that. I really like this idea that um, one way of looking at all of this are as many laboratories or control groups for this variable or that variable. We're going to uh, investigate what happens if we center our spiritual life on UFOs or on sexual life or on uh, organic growing or on Breathing techniques or things like this. How often have the groups, the smaller groups, been able to influence the bigger groups? Uh, you know, I, I mentioned entrepreneurialism earlier, and and part of what happens in the modern marketplace today is you get a small startup, it's incredibly successful, and then one of the big companies buys it up, right? And so it gets absorbed and and the new technology and the new ideas, the new methods become absorbed. Is there any way that the bigger religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, do they ever learn the lessons and absorb these uh, new religious ideas? Or are they... Do they see them as such competitors that what they really want is to destroy them and not learn from them?
2: You know, that's a really interesting question. I haven't really thought about that. Um, I can't really offhand figure of an example of, you know, a big religion borrowing something, you know, appropriating a, a ritual or or doctrine or from a, you know, new religion. Um, certainly, you know, say the Waldorf schools were started by Rudolf Steiner, who'd be considered, you know, leader, a cult leader or whatever. Um, but now they're very successful and respectable, and in fact, you know, schools for the wealthy um, and his techniques have become, and his ideas have become kind of mainstream, even though they're still str- a bit strange. Um, but I don't know, I mean, new religions, of course, I mean... Churches now sometimes have meditations, but you could say that just from Hinduism. Um, I'll have to think about that. I haven't really uh, seen that putter. I think generally um, the bigger religions tend to sneer at the baby religions. So, um, you know, we found in my book on on new religions in Quebec, we we gathered all the articles that had been written about new religions in Quebec since 1945, in, in French, of course. And there were, most of them, the vast majority, were written by Catholic priests or Jesuits, and they were saying these are all wrong because they don't believe in Jesus, you know. <laughs>
0: um,
2: and so they're on the wrong track. But then they're saying, on the other hand, it's very impressive how they managed to get youth so excited about this and attract so many people, and maybe we should study them just so we can find out how they do this and that we can apply this now in our, our youth program. In fact, many of them actually end with a chapter on that. It's really interesting.
1: That's very interesting. Um, so is there are there stages, are there identifiable stages that any new religion goes through uh, that then has a success that, that becomes successful and, and longstanding? Or are the, the sort of lifespans as unique as the individual belief systems?
2: Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, you know, usually it starts off with an uh, individual having a mystical experience, you know, hearing from a divine person or having a marvelous journey in which they have a vision, and then the person has the difficult job of communicating this in language that other people can understand. And sometimes they convert their own family first, or their, you know, their friends, um, or their girlfriend or wife. And then they have to reach out and get more people, and slowly it, it gathers. And then when they get a, a big enough body, then they and and you know then they have to sort of make institutions to keep the group together and make rules. And then um, society sometimes starts to notice them and says, you know, it's exactly like me going out in the garden and saying, ooh, there's a weed, I got to yank it out, you know, or <laughs> spray the weed killer on it, so. <laughs> So then, um, they get some kind of negative notice, like probably you know there's an article in the in a newspaper or something, and then you know a local the locals don't like their children joining, so they'll they'll you know tell the police this is a cult, or they'll talk to the mayor or something, and so then they have to navigate um, their relationship with their surrounding society, and also they have to get goods from the surrounding society and and give something back. So then they have to have some kind of industry or, or service they offer, um, and then they might expand and move to other countries, open missions in other countries, and then the leader will have this problem of having some charismatic young priest who's threatening to do a schism or take over his charisma. So he has to figure out how to um, you know, discipline him. But you can sort of see a core pattern.
1: Even in your account, uh, the leadership sounds disproportionately male. Is this the case? Are there, are there a lot of instances of, of female charismatic leaders, or is this a role that just tends to be male historically?
2: Well, no, actually, I, I'm probably using sexist language here, so excuse me, but I'm um, certainly there are many, there are many female uh, charismatic leaders. There, there are more males, as far as I can tell, but there are certainly many uh, female charismatic leaders, um, and there are also couples who are kind of equal, who have a kind of, you know, folie à deux, where they they get together and they share the vision and they work together and they're like one person.
1: That, that's interesting. I I never thought of sort of a couple leadership, but actually we have a friend, we have a couple who's friends who, at least, tried to start their own church in their own house and. This fits the pattern, right? I don't know, uh, uh-huh. you know, that they just they saw themselves as very religious Christian. They've got a lot of kids. They moved out of town, and there was a period of time on social networks where they were talking about having their own church and 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 leading the group. and And I don't think they thought of themselves as starting a new denomination or a new sect. Although I'm not in their heads, and we're not such intimate friends that they would tell me if if they if they were. I think they saw themselves as just uh, evangelicals uh, and doing their job and I can see how that could start and if they were successful how that could end up following this pattern and then at some point someone pointed to them and saying oh look they're cult leaders instead of oh they're evangelical Christians who have a church in their own house right
2: yes if so. they start getting visions original visions and change the you know change the belief system or well, she it, realizes that she's the Virgin Mary reincarnated.
1: <laughs> well, um, that that that'll be hard with 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 five biological kids. But I guess people have made stranger claims. If they if they tell me this, um, I will let you know because I can't think of anyone else who would be better to sort of hop in and see what's going on, Susan. I want to wrap up, but I do want to ask: Is there anything that we haven't talked about that maybe? You, as someone who studies and really has tremendous affection for the new religious movements, the musicality of it, also just the, the the culture, the intellectual life of it, what haven't we covered that you think is important for people to either understand or not be so afraid or just appreciate the existence of these groups that, that they might be resistant to? Is there something that you would conclude with that would sort of help all of us see what you see a little better. Well,
2: I guess I'll, I'll probably make myself very unpopular by saying this, but I would recommend that young people go out and visit. these <laughs> Because I did as a young, well, in my teens and early 20s, I mean, what my friends and I did for fun was go to, quote, cult meetings. You know, we would whenever a new Swami came to town, we'd go listen to him. We'd try out different meditation techniques. And I thought it was just very fun and weird and sometimes funny and you know and I, I, I all you know we all were we all find ourselves as spiritual seekers who were on the path and hoping to be enlightened someday um, but nowadays young people don't do that they, they just go out to bars or they go to a discotheque or they play video games and I think it's rather sad you know I think they should go to more cult meetings or religious know, just gatherings um, and find out for themselves um, because I find, with you know, having taught courses on new religions for about 25 years, students, you know, in the early days we would get information by going to a vegetarian restaurant or a New Age bookshop and look at posters. Now my students all go into the internet and they they go to the group's website or they go to anti-cult websites that we, in, where you find a stark, you know, startling contrast between what is being said and the, not, neither source really tells you what's going on. I mean, it's much better to talk to someone who's in the group to actually watch them doing their rituals, and then you get a, a good sense. And it's, it's actually very entertaining and fun. So I'm really surprised that most people don't do this on the weekend.
1: It, it's interesting because, right, we're recording this during uh, the pandemic, and the first vision that comes to mind is their parents who will hear you say this you acknowledge that you might be unpopular saying this and they're going to be worried that their kids are contaminated by this and i don't mean contaminated with the coronavirus i mean contaminated with this cult that it'll soil them that they'll get their claws in them and that once they have their email address or their phone number they'll never leave them alone but you don't you don't See this as much of a threat, or at least no more threatening than any other aspect of life. Do you?
2: Oh no, I, I visited a lot of groups when I was in you know my teens and they, I didn't join any of them really. Well, maybe one or two for a short while, but they didn't try. <laughs> you know, well, actually, there there were exceptions. Like there was one group, you know, landmark that used to be called uh, Est. Yes. Found me every evening for weeks. And my kids were going nuts because I was supposed to be making dinner, and the phone would go, and so I'd delay the dinner, and my kids were like, "Mom, we're hungry," you know, because they'd be telling me their, you know, life story, and I thought it was really fascinating. I was writing it down in a book, so, but it can be very <laughs> annoying, you know. So there are groups that are very clingy and and you know, bug you, but um, I think if you're interested in, you know, religion, if you're religiously musical, you know, you don't have to go to a new religious meeting. You can go to a a Sufi, you know, a Sufi uh, center, uh, sicker or you could go to one of the in, in Quebec. They have these wonderful kind of right wing Catholic groups that are, um, you know, do the old the old mass, the pre right. vatican mass, and so on. I mean, there are a lot of uh, interesting groups now to to visit. Or or you could go to a, a Brazilian Pentecostal church or a Chinese Pentecostal church. I mean, they oh,
1: all quite extraordinary. I think that that is a really good and challenging idea. It's harder uh, for our listeners who are in rural areas. It's a little harder to find, but certainly they're out there, and it's super intriguing and opens the door to a whole lot of new experiences, which are learning experiences or entertainment experiences, even if they don't lead to enlightenment. Susan, thank you so much for joining us on Why. This has been a tremendously interesting conversation.
2: Thank you, Jack. That was really entertaining. It's lovely speaking to a hybrid, you know, academic who's part journalist, part academic. It makes it so interesting.
1: Well, I I will pick that description instead of the more negative ones that people rely on sometimes. So thank you so much. You have been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Susan Palmer on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'll be back with a few more thoughts right after this.
0: Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org.
1: You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Susan Palmer about the distinction between cult and religions and how cults should be considered as new religious movements, as baby religions, rather than something unique, different, and even dangerous. And I have to say, towards the end, I felt nothing more than like a bigot. I feel like a really guilty father. When I was a kid in New York, uh, my friend Mansur and I used to go to the Scientology Center and take their tests, and we would explore some of these things a little bit for a laugh, the way that Susan liked to do it. And when we've traveled, we have taken our daughter Adina to various different religious ceremonies. She's been very interested in that. We took her to a Buddhist temple. uh, We've taken to other places, and recently she's wanted to go to the Scientology Center, and do, in fact, exactly what I did at her age. And I was really resistant to taking her, and I don't know why. And I think part of the reason for that was this sense that Scientology is a cult and Buddhism isn't. And Scientology is dangerous and annoying, and they're going to harass us, and the Buddhists won't. And I think that's largely unfair. I mean, I understand the various stories we hear about Scientology and everything from John Travolta and Will Smith to to legal cases and things like that. So there is some rational basis to it. But really, ultimately, I have held on to this distinction that there is a difference between a religion and a cult, and I don't want my daughter exposed to cults, and that's unfair. On the face of it, that's simply bigotry. In the end, there may be new religious movements that are dangerous, and there are maybe places that she shouldn't go or certainly shouldn't go alone. But that's true of every store, of every nook and cranny in this world. And so for me, this conversation really helped me move my conception of what is worth exploring. I don't know if I have a new categorization. I don't know if I'm never going to use the word cult again. But I do have this sense from what Susan offered that there's stuff there that's worth experiencing, learning about, talking to, and taking an interest in. And that it isn't just on the face of it crazies who are trying to steal all our money and get us involved in some drug-induced destructive orgy that will end us some faceless drone in a UFO movement, right? That's just not fair. One of the wonders of doing this show and one of the great joys of talking to specialists is that when the scholars are good, they can really explain to you what is so pleasurable about what they study. And I think Susan has done that today. She's really showed me, and I hope all of us, that new religious movements are worth our attention, if for no other reason than to appreciate the musicality and the aesthetics of the wide range of human religious experience. That's worth spending some time on, and that's worth thinking about. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I hope that you consider tweeting or sharing your favorite parts of the show and tagging us on social networks. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to share what you share and make you a star like we are. But otherwise, thank you for joining us. As always, it's an honor to be with you.
0: Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Lua Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower.